All right, Ephesians chapter 5, picking up at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers, partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we want to thank you for speaking to us, for not leaving us in the dark, but bringing the light, the truth of your word, so that we know what pleases you and honors you. Father, we ask that you would be with my words this morning, that you would be with our hearts, or that I would fade into the, into the back, and that you would shine forth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, I'm going to begin with reading you some words this morning, and I would ask you to see if you recognize these words. I know not all of us will, but some of us may happen to recognize these. What a fool I have been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, I found a key called promise that... Uh, will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then Hopeful said, That is good news, my good brother. Do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took out the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew opened with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out and walked free. If you thought that I was reading from Pilgrim's Progress, you were right. (laughs) Until the mid-20th century, the Bible was right up here. The number one printed book, the number one read book of all time, and still is, by the way, the Bible. And up until the mid-20th century, just under it, was Pilgrim's Progress. The second most printed and read book. And it still stands um, today, for many, a favorite book to read. Um, How it resonates with us. There's something that resonates, and I think it's rather clear, because it's about a walk. It's about a pilgrimage. It's about a journey uh, that we take. And really, it's the metaphor, I would argue, of life, isn't it? Is that it is a walk. 
that moves us from places of old, places of sin, places of darkness, and moves us towards places of light and truth and joy, and ultimately to our final destination, the place where we will be with God and dwell in his presence forever. And it's no mere guess to see, you know, where where does Bunyan come up with this idea of this walk, this pilgrimage, this pilgrim's progress? Well, it's clear. It's from scripture itself. If you go from Genesis and you work your way to the book of Revelation, it's there again and again. Consider, for example, Genesis chapter 17, where God comes to Abram and he says, Uh, that Abram was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And then, you know, you you see this metaphor is being played out in such a way that God's not telling Abram, look, I literally want you to pace back and forth. And as you pace back and forth, be blameless. No, it's a metaphor that as you go through life and journey, walk before me with my presence right with you and walk in my ways. And you get all the way to the book of Revelation. In our future, when we're with Jesus in glory, it's there too, because Revelation reads, and the city, that city to come, has no need of a sun or a moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, nor will there be night there. So Christian, this morning, I need you to listen. The journey that you are on with Jesus, your walk, The main point you need to hear about it this morning is broad, but it's crucial. It determines your destination. It determines where you end up. And I'm going to put it like this. It's very simple. Walk. Walk wise. Walk in the light. I think that's the main point that we'll see here in this passage this morning. Last week, We saw that good deeds flow out of good news. How you and I live is connected radically to what you and I believe. And Paul, again, as I've been trying to say, he's trying to keep our feet on the ground here because we can, you know, begin to think about these things in terms of only just theory. And Paul wants us to really see that these, being a Christian has practical application, how you walk. And for the Christian, I have to say, our sexual lives are really at the forefront of this. Um, Paul, here this morning, he begins in chapter three or chapter five at verse three, and he says that sexual immorality is not to be part of our walk with Jesus. And some of you, you'll notice in your study Bible. There at verse three, there is a reference where it says this is this word of, of immorality has uh, behind it this, this Greek word of pornea. Um, again, this is any sexual activity that is outside a committed husband and wife relationship. And so that sexual immorality, immorality this pornea, where we get the word porn from, um, it's very much in line with the modern idea of pornography. I think what was assumed for many years um, to be a harmless activity that was really 
not impacting anyone. I think now we recognize because in past, the idea of sexual immorality just primarily being a, a true physical activity outside the bounds of marriage, well, well we, we begin to see that actually it's, it's, it's bound up with the heart and what's going on there. And, and, and porn in particular is shown now to be extremely damaging to men and increasingly to women. And, it, and not just spiritually, but with our own minds. Uh, due to porn now, relationships for many are unsatisfactory. The, the view of the opposite sex only in terms of objectification. And you need to know the scientific data is in. Even the secular world is finally coming to realize the data is in and it's ugly. Um, this evil to reduce people to an object to be used for self-gratification has been now shown without a doubt it's in connection. Listen, it's in connection with the higher incidence of rape, molestation, wrecked homes, divorce, and sex trafficking. And so Paul, when he speaks here about pornea, I mean, this has real roots that dig deep into how we live as Christians. Uh, particularly just consider the recent movie that has come out. I know some of you have seen this and many of you have heard about it with Jim Caviezel's movie Sound of Freedom um, in reference to the um, uh, sex trafficking trade. And if you if you haven't uh, seen it or heard about it, please look into it because I want you to be aware of where we are at in our cultural moment for sex trafficking truly has become in many ways the 21st century version of the black African slave trade. It's, it's capturing people and using them and exploiting them and then throwing them away. And it's bound up with an industry that, that treats people as objects. And so as Christians, we are to take no part in this. We actively or even passively by the use of pornography, we want nothing to do with what is a gross evil. Rather, we want to be like William Wilberforce, who's willing to say, this is an uncomfortable conversation. This is not the polite stuff you talk about around the dinner table. But as Christians, we've got to get uncomfortable to do a healing work in our land. And that means we have to discuss these things. And, and actively, from the, the, the voting booth all the way to the dinner table with our children in our own homes, we have an opportunity to educate them and help our children and our grandchildren avoid the trap of these things. The average child is now exposed to pornography at the age of 12 or younger. While their brains are too young and naive, they're being rewired to think differently and wrongly about the good gift of sex. So that rather than it being something good that God gave to a married couple, it becomes something that enslaves them. So as Christians, our sexual lives matter. And the Bible warns us of wrong use, but it also presents it as something good. You're probably already aware that there are parts of the Bible that are somewhat rated R that present sex between a married couple as a good thing. It's a blessing. It's not something that we are to throw out as sin in and of itself. No, it just has its appropriate place. So our call then is to a sexual fidelity is actually in terms of scripture, it's to be a mirror, as we will see in a couple of weeks, that is in connection with the gospel itself. The fact 
that a husband or wife is faithful to their spouse mirrors to the world the faithfulness of God himself to us. So, just as the moon reflects the radiant sun to us, so to every good marriage in this church is to be a, a, a picture, a microcosm picture of Christ and the church to the watching world. One of the reasons that the early Greeks in the first and second century were attracted to Christianity was not merely just the logic part. So in other words, they weren't attracted to Christianity in our Christian worldview just because it was true, and it is, and logical, which it is, but it also was tied up with how we walked this walk. The, the fact that we, that the early Greeks were able to see that wives and husbands lived together in such a way that husbands were not uh, leaving their house, homes like many Greek men and going to the temple prostitutes. No, they were staying with their wives and home. And that husbands and wives, they lived together in modesty with their belongings. They shared out of their abundance with others in need. Paul, here in Ephesians 5, he says that covetousness, sometimes translated as um, greed, is not the way that we are to walk. When, when this world is all you have, I think there are many people who then begin to treat the world a bit like Gollum with the ring, where he's grabbing it and saying, my precious, my precious. Christians have been freed from that, and then we see that we're able to use our abundance to bless others. And the Greeks saw this, first century Ephesians saw this, and were attracted, saying, this is a whole new way to walk, a whole new way to live. And because of us prioritizing in this life things differently, we were to give thanks, being grateful above clinging to what rusts. And so Paul, he gets at this by making clear in verses four through six that the walk we walk avoids filthy speech and crude joking. The Christian's way of talking is a, a speech then that builds up and gives thanks rather than making sexual digs or co- coarse joking and that would glorify the world in its ways. It's a bit shocking to me. I don't know if this is a bit shocking to you. You kind of step back and you say, man, I'm really guilty at times of just kind of coarsely joking or overstating something and then realizing, ooh. And it's right up here with Paul's list of saying, these are things that are in line that separate us from God tremendously. This manner of speech along with our sexual lives. And so we just see how important the tongue is for the Christian and what comes out and what we're sharing with each other. It's of great importance. Now, I don't think Paul is asking us to, you know, eat prunes and drink vinegar. Okay. I I think Jesus joked and smiled and and I think we should too. Absolutely. But there's a joy that's to be had by the Christian that is not found in the foolish talk that Paul is hitting on here. We then are are warned, as it seems, Paul picks back up this idea of sexual immorality and greediness. Look at verse 5 and 6 again with me, where he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Then he says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What what a warning. And he says here, don't be deceived. Okay. We're going to come back to that. I, I think some people would look at, read this kind of with 21st century eyes. You read this and you think, Paul, I mean, come on, man. What's up with you? Did you just have like a bad afternoon? 
Are, are you just really grumpy and you're writing this? Well, maybe not. Listen to the way John speaks in 1 John, where he says, Little children, let no one deceive you, for whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the, the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Say, so, okay, Paul, eh, okay, John, maybe he was having a bad day. We'll try Peter. Peter says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially for those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Or let me come back to Paul, where in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he says that line again, Do not be deceived. Let me just pause here for a sec. When someone says, do not be deceived, it's because there is a real possibility that we could be deceived. And if there ever was mass deception on a global scale, it's right now, especially in regards to what Paul's speaking of here. So he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, I don't know if you read a list like this, and you begin to want to sink a little bit lower into your seats. Uh, One of my favorite preachers, uh, Ray Ortland, he talks about sin, particularly sexual sin in this way. He says, I don't know if you've been to Las Vegas where they have the blue men there where they're all painted in blue. And he says, really, sin is like that, particularly even sexual sin. It's like someone took a bucket of paint and threw it at us. And if we could see the sexual sin that is on us, even us who are in committed, faithful marriages, we would all be blue. Um, sin has so impacted us that the, the, the fall has so impacted us, even as Christians, we, we struggle with our sexuality. I mean, all of us here, even I as I preach, preach with a tint of blue. And I just hope you hear that because on one hand, we, we need to understand that there is a manner, a way of living in these things. And the pilgrimage path that we walk on carries us into another position, another place. So I just praise God. If, if, if you're hearing what I'm hearing right now, if you're hearing what scripture is saying about these things, you can think to yourself, is there any hope for me? See, the, the promises, the, the deception that we need to catch is that if you remain in these things, there is no hope. And at the same time, friends, in the same moment, you need to begin to ask the question, well, then if, if dwelling in these things means that I will never make it into the kingdom, how can one make it into the kingdom? That's where these 39 imperatives of Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all embedded and connected with the promises that are in reality of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so if you're struggling to live out or to walk in this manner of Four, five, and six. You got to go back and say, do I really believe one, two, and three? 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So friends we enter by grace. We stay in the kingdom by grace. You don't enter the kingdom by grace and then now you get it's your own works. No. We stay in the kingdom of God all by grace. And a grace that is not cheap. It is a grace that won't leave us unchanged. It's a grace that Paul says here, um, speaking of the Corinthians, the ones he just said, do not be deceived. He says, all this list of idolaters, adulterers, you know, the sexually immoral, he lists all these things. And he says right after this, and such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so then the the picture is that the Christian no longer lives in a defiant rebellion, but has changed. And where we fail, and we will fail, we are quick to repent. We we repent and we are then walking in the light. Some of you may hear me talking about sexuality and idolatry. And you begin to think, Thomas, you sound really like you're from the 1800s. You kind of sound like you're from the Dark Ages. I mean, really, does Christianity care about all this stuff that much? Does God really care about our sexual lives and and what we do with our money and how we spend it? Um, Yes, it does. Here's why. Here's why. Because Christianity is about selfless love. It's a selfless love that focuses on the other. And and modern sex and greediness is 100% about self. It's very selfish. It's about what pleases me and what builds me up. And sadly, this can be at the cost of others. But Christianity has at its very heart the most selfless man you've ever seen, who ever walked the earth. His pilgrimage on this earth was totally and utterly giving up his self to redeem, to seek and to save the lost. It's the very reason that Jesus Christ came into this world. You're familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To live the life that you could never live. To take your place on death row. To pay the penalty incurred by your sin. To give us his spirit, washing us, sanctifying us. So Christian, we confess our sin. We trust in our Savior to justify us and forgive us. And we get brothers and sisters to walk on this pilgrimage with us where we struggle in these ways so that we continue walking towards him. Oftentimes when we're taking communion up here on a Sunday morning, I will often, one of the phrases I will say is something to the effect of, I like to say, this table is open to sinners, yes, but it's open to repentant sinners, And the reason I speak this way is because as long as you are living and walking in a life of repentance, I don't care what you did when you were 15 at summer camp. I care about this week, this month. Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you need him today? That's what I care about. 
I think that's what scripture says is where it reveals our true hearts in this moment. And so then the table is always open to those who are saying, I continue to confess, I still need Jesus today. And when I take that communion, it's reminding myself, he's paid for my sin today and tomorrow. And the the picture that we see of those who come walk with Jesus in repentance and walking in the light. And Paul continues at verse 7 here where he says, Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even speak about the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It it is interesting where he says it is written here. It's a possible hymn or saying or perhaps a, a a a small statement where it's pulling in perhaps from Isaiah chapter 60, um, Malachi chapter 4, but the imagery is potent. Christian, you are a child of the light, not of darkness. So, walk. Walk wise. Walk in the light. And I love how Paul makes it clear here that just because you're a Christian, doesn't mean all of a sudden everything is figured out for you. As we walk in the light, he says in verse 10, try to discern what is the will of the Lord. In other words, there's going to be areas of our lives where it's black and white. It's very clear. There'll be other areas and times in your life where you're going to say, you know, I I think this is the right way to go or the right way to handle this situation. There'll be moments where this is a godly option and this is a godly option. And we say, Lord, give me wisdom on which way to go. Try to discern what the, the will of the Lord is so that we can please Jesus. And even with Pilgrim's Progress, we get the picture that this walking, this walking in wisdom and light means, as our passage here this morning is bringing home, that there's a sense in which the Lord um, disciplines us when we get off the path, uh, when we get sidetracked, when we get pulled aside, that the Lord would would bring us into line. And John Bunyan saw this in Scripture too, and he included it in Pilgrim's Progress, because he says here where Christian is speaking about his dream, he says, then I saw in my dream that he commanded them to lie down, in which they did, and he chastised them sore to teach them the good way wherein they should walk. And as he chastised them, he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So be zealous, therefore, and repent. This is done and he's, as he bid them on their way and to, to take good heed to the other directions of the shepherds. So they thanked him for all his kindness and then went softly along the way singing, Come hither, you that walk along the way. The right way. The song of singing, Come hither, that you walk along the way. I can't help but think that Bunyan was reading here in our passage and including this section of Ephesians 5. He had this in mind because Paul too, he's speaking about singing and he's saying it's bound up with walking along the correct path. To get there, he contrasts being filled with being filled 
The first filling is unwise. It is being filled with wine. That is drunkenness. To have consumed to the point where your inhibitions are lowered and your decisions are now being impacted by the wine. Wine, we could say, is controlling you. The picture is helpful because what should control us and guide us is the Lord, his spirit. So these two two being filled are in connection in, in such a way that it's important for us to see how they interrelate. Um, on one hand, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and he's guiding you and leading you, well, then we are being controlled by that. The other picture is if we are so filled with so much wine that it's controlling us, well, then that leads to a place of, of darkness. So, Paul's command then to us is not to be filled so that it controls us, so that uh, the health of our bodies and our minds and our souls are negatively impacted. We must not misunderstand scripture here. It's clear that wine is a gift. Psalm 104, you can go read that and you'll see that wine is a, is a good gift from God. Um, you can see it's very clear that Jesus and the disciples, they in, in, are drinking wine. Um, so wine's not the problem. Sex is not the problem. I hope you hear this. These things can have their appropriate place, and 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 for some, maybe that means total abstinence, and that's okay. But the issue is always a matter of the heart. Do we subtly idolize these things where our comfort and our hope is placed in them? Do they control us when she, we should rather be controlled by God, His Spirit indwelling in us, leading us? Again, when we struggle as Christians with these imperatives, we must return to the deeper belief in the indicatives. Because when we fail to behave, when, when sex becomes outside of the bounds where it belongs, or when wine is drunken into excess, we got to go back to, what do I believe? What do I believe about the gospel? What do I believe about sin? What is true and right? And will that correct my heart so then I am living appropriately? One of the ways historically Christians cement, and I was so glad, Tim, thank you for leading us and and how you correctly brought this up, is what we believe we sing through song. And it's so important that we sing it through song because that is what resonates in God's gift of music to us. It helps us cement into our hearts what is true and what we do believe. And so Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit, but then verse 19, he says also, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, there is a family song that... My wife and our kids, we sing at home. It's from Keith and Kristen Getty, titled, Oh, How Good It Is. And there's a line in there that I love. It says, Oh, how good it is to embrace his command, to prefer one another, to forgive as he forgives. And the reason I I love that line is because this idea of preferring one another, I think that's in line with what Paul means here when he's talking about submitting to one another. We're going to, in a few weeks, we'll come back to this idea and we'll try and unpack that more. So I'm going to be very brief here, but this idea of preferring uh, other people's preferences, you know, where I'm able and where they're not in sin to, to, to try to please one another, to prefer and submit to what others want so that they may be blessed, that they may be lifted up again in line with this idea that Christianity is not a selfish walk. It's a selfless walk in which we are trying to lift others up. And I think this includes how we sing and, and at times what we sing. But the, the 
Christian walk with our families and especially with our church families to prefer one another, to try and please one another. Singing has a way, as I've mentioned, of working God's truth down into our hearts, giving us the joy we need. I was thinking back about Paul and Silas when they were in prison. You remember what happened? They had, there was a, a, a slave girl who was demonized and and they prayed and she and the demons fled out of her. And it's amazing in that scene, her owner, the owner of the slave girl was enraged. And so he got Paul and Silas to be put in prison. Now you recall what happens when Paul and Silas are in prison. It says there in Acts that they sat in prison feeling sorry for themselves. They wondered if God was even on the throne anymore. No. In Acts 16, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. It's a beautiful scene because the church, the, uh, the warden there of the prison, he, he's, he even is in on this whole scene and he comes to faith there. Um, and what were they singing in that prison? I mean, what songs were they singing? Were they singing amazing grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now when found was blind, but now I see. Well, they probably weren't singing that because it wasn't written yet. They probably were singing something like that, though. And they probably got to something in their song about, you know, uh, my chains are gone. I've been set free. Because even though they were sat in physical chains, they could sing and rejoice that they had been freed in their hearts from sin and death. And what an impact that the guy running the prison hears this and says, Something is true about all this. And of course, they're miraculously freed. You know, you and I, we can sing as the, the old country song sings, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And for Paul and for Silas and for the Ephesians and for us, this pilgrimage, this walk that we walk is moving us somewhere heavenly. If the Christian walk left us dead in our sin and trespasses, if it left us unchanged, what would be the point? What's the hope? If this isn't true and this isn't really doing anything, then we are wasting our time. But friends, no. What we see here, this real hope, is taking us to a place of glory. And I'd like to close this morning with Bunyan's way of putting it. Where Christian, the fictional character, he's walking along with Hopeful. He's on this pilgrimage. He's on this walk. He's trying to walk in light and walk in wisdom. And they begin to encounter these beings called the Shining Ones. There, and they're about to, they're seeing from a distance heaven itself. And Bunyan writes this, he says, they taught the talk that they had with the singing, with the, sorry, with the shining ones was about the glory of the place told to them that the beauty and the glory of it was inexpressible. There said they is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem with innumerable company of angels and spirits of men made perfect. You are going now, they said, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given to you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth, to wit, sorrow, sickness, affliction, death, for the former things have passed away. You are now going to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the prophets. 
Men that God hath taken away from evil to come that are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. So Christian, and I'm not talking about Pilgrim's Progress. I'm talking to you, Christian. You. You this morning who may be asleep, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You. Sing together this morning as we close. Come hither that you walk along the way. Behold your God. Behold the heavenly Jerusalem coming. And Christian, walk. Walk wise. Walk in the light. Would you pray with me? Father of lights, uh, we come to give you thanks this morning. Um, We thank you for the good gift of salvation. We thank you for the path before us that you have made clear um, by sending your son to, to show us the way. And we thank you that the way is not just a path to walk. He is the way. That as we cling to him, Lord, we can walk in truth and light. We can have the joy of forgiveness. And we can bring you honor and glory and please you even this morning. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.